name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Then Jesus said to them, Whose head is this, and whose title? Or as most translations have it, Whose image is this? Whose inscription? It is, I think, the right question. Strictly speaking, in this context, it's also a pretty easy question. You look at a commonly used coin or bill in the country where you live, and someone says, whose image? And most of us can probably say, Washington, Lincoln, And it's not hard to imagine that the question gets even easier if there is literally only one possible answer for whose head could possibly be on a coin and whose inscription. Clearly, it's Caesar. So it's a pretty easy question as long as we leave it in that specific context. But Jesus is not quite known for leaving things where they are easy. So Jesus continues. Then give the emperor what belongs to the emperor. And give God what belongs to God. So, okay, the coin then that belongs to the empire What belongs to God? For that matter, what belongs to me? What belongs to you? Whose money is it? Whose country? Whose laws? Whose body? Whose streets? Whose word? Whose story? Whose God? Whose image is this, anyway? Maybe it's not such an easy question after all. But I still think it's the right question. And it's a timely question. This week, the social media hashtag or classifier, MeToo, has highlighted the ubiquity of sexual harassment and assault in our society. As 50-plus women who have worked with and for Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein have come forward with stories of experiences ranging from verbal sexual harassment to violent sexual assault, these stories have been met with what we have come to expect as the usual range of questions. Things like, why are you trying to ruin his career? Why didn't you say something earlier? How are we supposed to believe you if you don't have proof? It's just your word against his. Whose word? Whose story? Whose body? And then one actor at the suggestion of a friend of hers picked up a hashtag and message of solidarity and said, If all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. 
Well, yes, indeed. This hashtag, this classifier, and the movement of Me Too was born 10 years ago when a camper told her counselor a story of assault that was so awful and so triggering for the counselor that she had to hand off the camper to a different staff member because she couldn't bring herself even to whisper to the camper, me too. Whose body? Over a decade's time, that counselor found a way to say to other survivors, me too. As a hashtag, it went viral this week, not only because there were so many allegations against Weinstein, but because neither the allegations nor the skepticism with which they were met were surprising to most women. Whose story is it? Whose word is the word that counts? When I got back from our fall campus ministry retreat last Sunday night, there was pretty much nothing in my social media feed but posts that included the words, me too. Some of the posts were just those two words. Some women told their stories in the posts, or more likely, one or two small snippets of their stories. And a whole lot of women I know were caught between, well, yeah, of course me too, on the one hand, and on the other, but do I get to say me too if my story isn't the worst one I know about? Whose word? Whose story? As one friend said, okay, yeah, I guess we're doing this today. But me too is just this week's incarnation of the question of what belongs to whom, what surprises whom, and what protects whom. From flags to streets, from policing to immigration, from the boardroom to the halls of government, the question rises from mouth after mouth after mouth, day after day after day. Whose? Whose money? Whose country? Whose laws? Whose body? Whose streets? Whose word? Whose story? Who's God? And to make it just that much harder, Jesus' solution seems to be to look and say, well, if Caesar's image is on it, give it to Caesar. If God's image is on it, give it to God. Which means we're going to need an answer to another question. How exactly are we supposed to know whether God's image is on it? What exactly does God look like anyway? There is a hint of reassurance, or at least solidarity, to be found in realizing that even Moses asked this same question. In Jewish tradition, Moses is unparalleled. Moses is said to be the greatest of the prophets, 
When the author of Deuteronomy eulogizes Moses at the end of the book, it reads, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Moses gets a more direct experience of God than anyone else in human history. And even Moses says to God, Uh, God, what do you look like? And here is the thing that I cannot emphasize enough about this interaction. God gives Moses an answer. And God gives Isaiah an answer when Isaiah asks. And God gives the disciples an answer. And God gives the Corinthians an answer. God has given us a repository of answers so that when we too need to ask again and again and again, God, where are you? And what is yours? And what do you look like? God neither gives up on us nor grows impatient with us, but shows us and tells us again and again I know you by name, and I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name. Let us make humankind in our image, God says, and in the image of God they were created, all in the image of God. I have called you by name, and you are mine. Before you were born, I knew you and loved you and called you my own. A young woman will conceive and bear a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When you did these things for the least of these my siblings, you did it for me. You are my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you members of it. The image of God, the voice of God, the glimmering, grasping sense of the barest glimpse of the back of the presence of God is found in the people of God gathered together. And the more fully we are gathered, the more fully God is shown and seen and felt. Now that's not to discount direct individual experiences of God. I am about as much of a mystic as anyone I know, so I think I have a leg to stand on to say I value direct individual experiences of God. But the thing about individual experiences of God whether they are literal visions and voices, or whether it's a gut sense bubbling up or a spirit of unexpected consolation, what's so important about that is that the way we test them is in the community. Whether it's a question of, is God calling me to this vocation? Is God sending me to advocate for this change? Is God telling me to sit down and rest? 
We don't do it alone. Formally or informally, the way we check things out and say, does that sound like something God would say? Does that seem like this feeling is coming from God? Is to check in with others in the community. It's a critical check on our own individual blind spots and brokenness. Which is why it is always over and again so critical for the church continually to do better if we're going to identify ourselves as the beloved community. We need also to know our corporate and individual blind spots and to have them balanced by each other. This is why in a week or so, the second session in Rockwell House's Year of Discernment will be a training in unconscious bias, intersectionality, and discernment. Because we cannot do our best work of listening and looking for the voice and image of God unless we also have done the work to know where we personally are likely to see God's image and where we are likely to miss it. The church is not immune to sexism, racism, homophobia, classism, hatred. And maybe that sounds obvious and even silly to say out loud, but history suggests that we're really pretty good at pretending that because we're the body of Christ, we're fine. Last year at Diocesan Convention, one of our male colleagues stood up to speak to a resolution that had something to do with pay equity in the church and said, but we're the church. I'd like to believe that in the church, we no longer have a gender pay gap. We no longer have a gender issue. In other words, I'd like to believe that this issue isn't real. And the Holy Communion and Trinity and Rockwell House tables of people looked at each other in some disbelief and said, well, I'd like to believe it too, but we know otherwise. <laughs> the Me Too article that hit closest to home for me this week was the one published in the Episcopal publication, Episcopal Cafe, written by a fellow young clergywoman, entitled, A Taxonomy of Creeps. She outlined experiences with harassment in the church from guys she described as ranging from the predatory guy to the powerful guy who nobody is willing to stand up to out of fear of how much power he has, to the affectionate guy who's just like that, to the guy who's just too immature to know better, to the next guy, because there is always a next guy. I don't know any clergywoman who doesn't know all of these. I suspect that more women in the church generally than many of us would think know all of these. I've experienced more harassment in the church than out of it, though that may say something about how much time I spend in the church. And I say this not because I'm looking for sympathy or because I want to shame anyone who has been on either end of these kind of interactions, but because I don't know how we tell a whole story 
except by telling lots of small, specific, individual stories. And it's important that when we look at the church, that we see the whole image. We have a history of racism, of sexism, of homophobia, classism, ableism, and it is a history that is not confined to our past. If we find it in the world, we find it in the church as well. We need love. We need grace. We need hope. Because things really are hard. The world really is broken, and so are we. But God really is God. And God really can be found, in no small part because God has given us one another. We belong to each other. And so, while we cannot see God's fullness, we can say to one another, now you are God's beloved. And when we do, we find that it is enough for today. And so, we can say it to one another again and again, today and tomorrow and tomorrow. Whose image? Yours and mine and ours. Whose church? Yours and mine and ours. Who is God's beloved? You and I and we. Now you are the image of God, the body of Christ. And you too, and you too, and me too. Amen.